Welcome to Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. This is episode 38, and today we are going to discuss something that we actually have been discussing as brothers within our morning Bible study. And we've been going through the book of Romans in an expository way. And we're now in the famous Romans 9 chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, famous for good reasons and for some very bad reasons. But it is a chapter which brings out topics that are very clear, but sometimes very emotionally charged to really accept and to love. And it's the doctrine of predestination and election. And so we've been in Romans 9 for about, so far, two or three uh, different Uh, Thursdays at this point, and we've been wrestling with a particular part of the passage where we look at very clearly the main thrust of Paul's argument in this chapter is how God is Lord not just over nature and Lord over all events that occur, but he's also Lord over something as deeply personal as salvation, and that's where we are right now in Romans 9. Yeah, and Romans 9, verses 14 through 16 were the verses that we recently covered in our our men's Bible study. And it's where Paul says in verse 14 and following, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, You could say human effort there, Mm -hmm. but on God who has mercy. Uh, This is all, of course, uh, Paul's writing in the context of the question, why uh, are not all Israel saved? If God's Mm -hmm. promise is true and if his word is powerful, how can it be that so many Jews at the time of Paul and and prior, Mm -hmm. uh, why is it that they've rejected these these promises. And so it presents a question that many even still are asking today. If God is sovereign, why, uh, isn't, ev- why, why isn't everybody a Christian? Um, and here we come to some complexities, of course, uh, but there's also something very simple about this, and that is that God is a, a sovereign God. But lots of questions, of course, stem from this. And as, as the three of us know, that I'm, I'm sure we all have our story about how we wrestled with this doctrine at one point and really even were, were maybe angry at this doctrine or figured that God couldn't be a sovereign God in this manner. And, uh, and as we studied scripture, of course, we came to a different, different conclusions. But um, I think this is a conversation that's, that's uh, you know, a helpful one to have for, for our yeah. listeners. Yeah, I think, I think this is probably one of the more misunderstood doctrines in the church and in reform sure. theology and certainly mischaracterized uh, quite often people will look at a chapter like Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 and they that what they take away from it is they think that if you interpret it um, as reformed folk interpret it that you're making God sort of a mean uh, person who just sort of robotically chooses some to be saved and mm-hmm. And and very uh, very just woodenly or without compassion, destines others to damnation. And um, what we understand instead is that when we come to chapters like this and, and uh, Romans nine in particular with its clarity, that our presuppositions about the character of God and the nature of humanity make a big difference, mm-hmm. uh, because 
instead of showing God as being sort of a just a, a maniacal despot who enjoys just damning people to eternal um, you know hell, instead it's it's actually showing and magnifying the mercy of God alongside of His holiness. Yes, in verse fourteen, uh, Paul asks the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And that's what, what a lot of people are asking. Now, our version of that is, uh, uh, is God fair? Mm -hmm. And of course, when we start asking about the fairness of God in regards to whether or not we will come under his judgment, we start making assumptions about uh, humanity and yeah. uh, what many would call the inherent goodness of man. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we see everything going on around us today, our... Mm -hmm. Our prisons uh, full and overflowing, uh, uh, murders, wars, rumors of wars, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of hateful immorality, the sex trade. We see all this stuff, and and yet we we, we so want to uh, the, the the world rather wants to declare the goodness of man and mm -hmm. keep coming back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really goes against the common sense and reality. The Bible makes a lot of sense when it says that we are depraved, uh, darkened in our minds, uh, rebellious in our wills, uh, our hearts are hard against the Lord. And, and so when we recognize that we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, dead in our trespasses and sins, then we recognize that it's not uh, a few more good works that we need. It's a sovereign saving, merciful God that we need. Amen. And of course, God has provided that mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think part of the problem is we think of goodness and badness in stark categories such as the people in jail for murder or sex trafficking or child abuse. Those are bad people. Right. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us are good people. Yeah. And I'm one of those good people is typically how most of us would think. And so when we come to a chapter that says that we're dead in sin or that you know, we, we, we need a complete uh, work of God for us, it doesn't make sense to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Gabe, what, just to pass this off to you, what instead is sort of the biblical view of man, or a, to say it in the more sort of fancy term, a biblical anthropology? <laughs> sure. I think uh, what John mentioned is, is correct. The way the world kind of views humanity is that there is superficial badness, but at the root, there's goodness. Mm -hmm. And in the world's mind, that means you need to train people to get beyond their kind of superficial, bad, environmental badness and get them down to what's really good about them. The Bible completely inverts that. The Bible says man in, their, in its fallen state has superficial goodness at the top, mm -hmm. but when you dig down, you see the depths of evil. And it doesn't mean that people are as evil as they can possibly be. But when you keep digging, you don't find more good. You find more and more wickedness. You find more and more self-seeking. You find more hatred for others, malice. Uh, all the uh, descriptions we see in Romans 1 and Romans 3 applies to man. And so the reality is that when we talk about injustice on God's parts. You can't start a discussion on injustice unless you are honest about what man is. In the fallen state of man, the reality is that we are all at the same level of sin when we start off. There's great no leveler. Yeah. The great leveler. Exactly. The uh, the most moral person you can find 
and the most wicked, depraved person you can imagine is in jail. In terms of their core uh, heart values, there's still wickedness, evil, and depravity there. That's where we were starting. And so when we talk about election, that's uh, apart from God's electing grace, the other twin doctrine there is man is much more wicked, fallen than what we commonly admit to. Yeah, I think, and that's, that's what helps make uh, this doctrine um, not so distasteful for, for, for folk is that you realize that it's not, the question shouldn't be, you know, why, you know, why does God let some perish? Mm -hmm. The question, the better question is, why would God save anyone? Correct. And so really it's a magnification of his mercy mm -hmm. um, alongside his holiness and justice because what we also have to understand next to man's depravity, what makes man's depravity make sense, especially when we're not talking about someone who is a murderer or child abuser or something mm -hmm. like that, what makes that make sense is the holiness and purity of God. Mm -hmm. and so we don't have a good view of God's holiness from the scripture. We're not going to have a good view of man's, of man's sinfulness. Mm -hmm. And therefore we are going to sort of inherently assume that we're basically good and that it is fair for God to be kind to us instead of it is merciful God for God to be kind to us. Let's, let's raise the actual additional questions because that's, that's one end of the injustice argument is to say that um, man has fallen, but here's the other kind of counterpoint that someone may make. If we're all fallen in sin, why is it right for God to choose some for salvation and to leave the rest for damnation. Why isn't that considered unjust? I think that uh, the passage itself that we just read answers mm -hmm. the question. It says that God has has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and compassion on whom he has, wants to have compassion. And God is just any time that he leaves someone in their rebellion. Mm -hmm. Always just. Always. Uh, and he will pour out his judgment upon those who are rebellious uh, and against him. Uh, and this is what we all deserve. Uh, we must make that point as well. It's exactly. not like one person doesn't deserve that and another does. We all exactly. deserve it. God is also just in saving uh, yes. people and having mercy on them, not by the wave of a magic wand and a shrug of the shoulders and a, a waving open of the door of heaven, He's just because he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the That's earth right. to fulfill the covenant of works, to fulfill the covenant of grace, to perfectly fulfill all righteousness, to uh, fulfill all the requirements of the law of God on our behalf because we've failed to. Mm -hmm. And then as a perfect righteous lamb to lay his life down on the cross and to suffer the penalty for our sins mm -hmm. and to receive the very wrath of God in our stead. And so God is just and justifier Amen. of those who have faith in Jesus. And that's Amen. the message Amen. of Romans, isn't it? And, and I, I wanted to make a point, uh, piggybacking on something Ross said earlier. Election, predestination, should never be thought of as God in a kind of cold, detached, mechanistic way, choosing some and not others. Amen. It's all a great mystery. We must admit that. But we must recognize that the Bible teaches something very different than that view of election and predestination. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, one place that it does this so clearly, 
Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now here's, here's the kicker in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which, now listen to this, which he lavished upon us Mm -hmm. in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And then in verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all all things things according to the counsel of his will. So we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And so we don't want to divorce the glorious reality of God's infinite love and mercy lavishing upon us his love and mercy in Christ as we think about this doctrine. Uh, this doctrine is not to be used as a weapon against semi-Pelagians or, or Arminians or those who don't believe it, you know, mm-hmm. that we would have disagreements with. It's not to get into fights and arguments about. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be a, a doctrine of comfort to yes. know that we are loved and kept by God. Yeah. And we talked a little earlier in Bible study, and maybe I'll ask Gabe to comment on this, we talked about, you know, if you can get yourself into your salvation by your own efforts, then what else is that true? That means you can also work yourself out of it. And that's the danger of, that's one obvious danger of what happens when you believe or you try to reason within yourself that I am ultimately in control of our salvation, of my salvation. Now, in, in truth, there's a lot of, you can say there's a lot of uh, cultural pressure to believe that because we are naturally fiercely independent as just Americans in one sense. <laughs> uh, we like to say that we've done this ourselves and we like to say that the buck stops here. But in a very real sense of it, um, when we take that perspective and try to put it upon God's redeeming work in Christ Jesus, what we're really saying is that we are the ones who have earn the merit enough to go to God flat-footed and say, I deserve entrance into heaven. Mm. And that sort of hard attitude basically indicates a certain sense of arrogance, a very real sense of arrogance, and it effectively tells us and tells everyone around us that it isn't Christ's righteousness that is our foundation of hope. It's basically our spiritual sensitivity. It's our spiritual work. And it ultimately tells us, it tells other people that the reason that I'm going to make it into heaven is because at the end of the day, I've done enough to merit it in some way or fashion. And it means that for those who really understand their sin, if they don't have any sort of assurance that God is the one who is sustaining them, Mm -hmm. if they don't have any real sense to say that God has given grace to start, to continue and to finish their journey then there's a very real sense of despair that comes upon such a person. 
how is it then, the question could be asked, uh, somebody's assurance of salvation could certainly be compromised mm -hmm. if you believe you have contributed to your salvation and thus mm -hmm. can kind of remove yourself from that if you have a mm -hmm. bad day or you sin against mm -hmm. God in some way. Um, some would argue that election and predestination, to hold to that could actually uh, compromise your, your assurance of salvation, that, that the, this doctrine really is, is wrong and it, it'll, it'll compromise our, our assurance, uh, it'll dampen it. What is our what is our biblical answer to that? Uh, how is it that we how is it that assurance is strengthened in the context of holding fast to this doctrine? Yeah, well, the assurance is is something that um, for for some people it, it may just be it may just be something is even our confession the Westminster Confession says it may just be a struggle for some people and um, that itself should not be something which you know, ultimately pushes them to despair. Sure. Some have um, very tender consciences yes. and are always wrestling with that. I'd say very few people are like that, but there are but those who are those, like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the Lord, uh, in, in the most part, what, what is relatively normative for the Christian life um, is that uh, there, are, there are a couple of things. One, uh, being, being connected to the local church and mm -hmm. being in the church, it's, it's being in the place where uh, you are fed with the Word of God. You are fed on uh, the sacraments. Uh, you are nourished through corporate prayer and through pastoral care. You are encouraged in your walk. And, and the Lord brings through those things blessings. And He brings sanctification into your life through, um, through those means of grace. And, and you do see change and growth and fruit in your life that can only happen by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the, the scriptures are clear that uh, you know a tree by its fruit, and um, Christians will have Christian fruit in their life. And uh, sometimes for those who have tender consciences, maybe they're a little bit blind to that fruit and to the growth in their life. Others may see it more clearly, um, depending on the background they're coming out of and that sort of thing. But those are all uh, testimonies to what God has done. Um, but the, the, uh, the confidence comes uh, with understanding God's sovereignty and salvation and election, the confidence comes in His sovereignty, in His promises, um, and in what He, uh, just as, um, as we read, that, that He who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And, and we see through the various indications in our lives that God is working, and that He is not a liar, and He is not going to let us go, mm. um, and that, uh, that we have great confidence in His working all things unto their completion. Yes, and, you know, we do believe there should be some introspection in the Christian life. We should Certainly. be examining ourselves. In fact, uh, Paul, when he speaks of our coming to the Lord's table, says to examine ourselves. Absolutely. And it's important to do that. But uh, we also don't want to get caught up in some kind of hy hyper-introspection where all we're doing is thinking uh, internally about ourselves and are we doing enough and those kinds of things. Um, we want to be... Uh, extrospective, that is we want to look outside of ourselves to that glorious alien righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ needs to be the object uh, of our, our spiritual gaze. Yeah. We need to keep our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, the things, Ross, you were talking about a moment ago uh, in the local church, they are meant to drive us to Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If the local church is not proclaiming the gospel through word and sacrament clearly, then that church is not being a faithful church. Mm -hmm. We need to abide in Christ, abide in the gospel, and it's from that place 
that with a thankful heart we will seek to conform to the word of God and to obey the word, which then leads me to Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that means spiritual growth there, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's here's an important verse, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Mm -hmm. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So there's something... There's a very intimate connection between, you know, abiding in Christ, uh, abiding in Him by grace through faith, and 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 bearing the fruits of righteousness that we just read a moment ago, and that being very connected to making our calling and our election sure. Not not that we we ourselves are making the thing itself sure, but that it's sure in our hearts. Yes. We're, we're, we're experientially recognizing, like, I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. and I'm saved. Yes. Now, what would, what would impact assurance negatively? Well, one of the more obvious things would be uh, persistence on repentant sin. Yeah. Yes. And patterns of sin. That long-term pattern of sins has the way of basically contradicting this passage. It means that you're either blind, you're short-sighted, and it gives the impression to, let's say, the one of a conscience who's sensitive, it gives the impression that, well, perhaps the grace of God is not there working. And then you begin to, instead of looking outward, you now become inwardly self-absorbed. And that's when, that's what, in a sense, uh, persistent sin does. It makes you self-absorbed so that you're constantly looking in and you're trying to justify yourself. You try to push certain sins aside to examine other potential fruit that you see in your life. And all of that is, again, turning you away from Christ and turning you inward. And that's why your assurance is affected so much when sin is allowed to just remain in the hearts, well, just remain in a long-term persistent sort of pattern. And I, would, I would add to that, completely agree with everything Gabe, Gabe just said, but adding to that, um, a an anemic spiritual diet or mm-hmm. a, a lack of being connected, vitally connected to Jesus the vine. Yes. Uh, John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if, uh, to continue the metaphor, if, if our connection to the vine is, you know, is anemic or it's weak, um, diseased, as it were, either through uh, sitting under a, a poor administration of the gospel in preaching mm-hmm. and in the church, you know, if you're sitting under the kind of preaching that, is constantly uh, not pointing you to Christ and um, is kind of just more, as others have termed it, moralistic or therapeutic type preaching. Like mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing that will turn your eyes away from Christ yes. and therefore away from assurance. And then um, even if you're in a good type of situation, a good mm-hmm. church, if you're not just there, if you're not attending, yeah. if you're not sitting under the means of grace, then, then you're not receiving the nourishment that Jesus himself has instituted the church to give you. Yes, yes. Another uh, objection or uh, maybe some confusion surrounding the doctrine of election would be in, in relation to evangelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, many uh, perhaps you know, f- 
uh, Ross, you grew up in a, in a reformed home, so these things probably came together more for you at a younger age than it did for me or for Gabe. But, mm-hmm. I mean, when I first started hearing these doctrines, I thought, well, I guess evangelism is just a waste of time. God's going to take care of it, and he's sovereign, <laughs> and people are going to come to know him no matter what. So, so why don't I just uh, go lay by the pool and not worry about evangelism? Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabe, what would you say to that? Well, there's two things. There's a wonderful book on the Christchurch Reading Challenge called Sovereignty of God and Evangelism by J.I. Packer that discusses this in much fuller detail. Mm-hmm. But a simple answer is there's Romans 9 and then there's Romans 10. Enough <laughs> 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 said. So the, the, the truth of the matter is that when we talk about the doctrine of election, it is never meant to be pitted against the responsibility of the church and her ministers to do what they are commanded to do in terms of the standard Great Commission. And in terms of what Scripture says, Romans 10, uh, 14 through about 17 is pretty clear about this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the basic point of that passage is, we can speak about God's sovereignty and superintendence over all points of salvation, but God obviously has placed various secondary means to accomplish that. And the primary one seen here is the preaching of the word of Christ. That is how faith is built. That is how... Uh, you can say newborn believers in the Lord are nourished. And that is how God in his sovereign will causes believers to start the race, to walk through the race through many trials and suffering and, and difficulties. And ultimately, that's how they finish their course. Mm. And that's why the sovereignty of God is very important, not just to affirm, but to really accept. Because without God's sovereignty being there, there is no certainty that a newborn believer finishes. Mm. What will basically be the case is that the newborn believer will have to get the impression that he was given the initial grace and hopefully he has to find his way through life without any real assurance of a finished goal or any real direction. It's basically, I got you here, now go finish the rest of the race. That's not what the scripture teaches. And that's because the scripture teaches that We ought to preach the gospel to make disciples, and those disciples will persevere to the end because God is sovereign over the message being preached, over the ministers who are sent, and over the lifetime growth of his disciples. Yes, and when when do we feel most uh, uh, alive in Jesus and encouraged in him than when we are sharing him with others? Uh, It's really something, isn't it? Just... Mm -hmm. From an experiential standpoint, when we are engaged in conversation with people about Jesus and we're telling them about his love and his grace and uh, it, there's a fire in our yeah. hearts and, and the Lord uses us, I think, as a kind of means of grace in our lives as we share his word and mm-hmm. uh, lead people to him. Uh, the Lord uses it to strengthen our own faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I think of Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth. And uh, the Lord Jesus uh, speaks to him and says in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city 
who are my people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been a traditional interpretation of this that um, they were non-converted uh, or unconverted elect people walking around Corinth who had not yet been saved. Mm -hmm. And they needed to hear the truth of the gospel. So uh, here in Charleston, uh, we have the, the, the confidence that there are people walking around who are, who are God's elect, who have been chosen before the foundation of the world in love, mm -hmm. God predestined them, and it's just a matter of time. And yeah. will we have the opportunity and privilege to mm -hmm. share with them the good news of the gospel and to lead them uh, to saving faith? And uh, I know the three of us are engaged in, uh, in ministry and conversation with the unbelievers and seeking mm -hmm. to lead them to Christ. And that's the privilege that we have as the church, mm -hmm. uh, not just the, the church as church, as ministers, but even as, some, as uh, professors in the college campus, uh, being salt and light in those, mm -hmm. those contexts. Um, well, this has been a really good conversation, I think, and hopefully uh, we haven't confused our listeners too much <laughs> about this uh, uh, complicated doctrine. We do readily uh, admit that this is a doctrine filled with mystery. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do not pretend, and no one should, to have uh, everything uh, uh, lined up perfectly. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we simply want to uh, uh, believe the scriptures mm -hmm. and to yeah. trust that our Lord God is not just uh, sovereign over nature, and not just sovereign as the lawgiver, but he's mm -hmm. also sovereign over salvation, and mm -hmm. as Ephesians 1 says, all things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Between the Times, and we hope that you will join us for our next episode.